Hi, and welcome to Figure Speech, a program from WRBH, where every week you can meet local poets and fiction writers from the New Orleans community and listen to them share their work. This episode, we welcome on poet Esme Franklin, who is a member of the class. Hi, this is Esme Franklin. I'm a poet living here in New Orleans. I am a recent graduate of the MFA program at Warren Wilson College up in Asheville, North Carolina. I'm also a member of The Class, a group of poets who operates around the city to create and support poetry. I'd like to thank Sean Jackson for making this reading happen and all of the generous poets I've had the pleasure of workshopping with over the years here in New Orleans. And thanks to WRBH for having me here in studio. So in my own writing, I like to consider personal mythologies and how we perceive and work through characters. For me, poetry is a lot about adopting any one of the many masks of the page and playing out formal and post-formal dramas. So with that in mind, I'm just going to jump straight in and start out by reading a couple of poems having to do with fairy tales. I wrote this first poem after watching Jean Cocteau's 1946 black and white film, Beauty and the Beast, which is a lot more violent, emotional, and I would probably say beautiful than the Disney version most of us are familiar with. So here we go. Trial, Bell, after Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast, 1946. Dramatis Personae, Bell, Femme, Beast, Bell's Bow, Brother, Bell's Keeper. My beast, where are you? I have you, your key. I had the beast once, but now it's call again later, ask after your beast if you dare. My brother was here, alack. My brother, three-horned, prick-dick, nothing like beast, though neither will return my calls. I ask again, has he not left a note? I find the beast's glove in my pocket, glove's pocket erupts in flame. I find his reflection in each pool of water, including but not limited, to the threatening sky, a rose petal upturned, the cat's newborn wet face. The beast, he would make such a still life, finally replies, you fool, check the pool in the garden behind the house. In this I find his face and the beast with a missed you pinned to his chest. He moves like a fish, a moment, please. He is polite about this. The beast professes to a few indiscretions, nothing like my brother, whom he forgives to the glove he lent, to burn, of course, and the key is yours to keep. He is stony on this point and asks, how have you filled your time without myself, your beast? So begins the trial. Trial. Beast. Ever. His fur a vision, her knotted locks, his corseted mane, her hell-bound abdomen, his perfumed pads, her calloused palms, his teeth persimmon, her yellowed gums, his velveteen hunt, her clumsy whoosh, his grip lead heavy, her flat foot step, his loping gait, her muffled fall, his stormy trope, her bleeding brow, his grip gone dry, her grinning eyes. His horned silhouette, her back 
despair, his shallow lunge, her bulk airborne. After. His private chapel, her, his private heart, her chapel sleeves, his swollen pants, her sagging gown, the castle walls high as ever, the pot and kettle left at once. His morning tea, her cold meat pie, his thinning limbs, her atrophied wig, the singing wardrobe owed arrears, his horns wall mounted, her chiseled chamber, his cherished rose, her garden shears. This next poem, moving on a bit, is for Andrea Bocelli, the blind Italian opera singer. Andrea Bocelli, one. The Californians in the amphitheater believe in the sculpt of his mouth, if nothing else. The note ascending his tourmaline pocket, asking, Come sopporta la silenzia? To wear spring's threat on your sleeve year-round. To cut dusk with a bird. The woman at his side, there is always a woman at his side, in a gown, grazes in A minor, offering the audience her steady gaze. Two. Luminarias ring the orchestral pit. The light breaks against his blindfold. Not in waves, but merely once, as in song he does not ask. Three. Luminarias ring the orchestral pit. The light breaks against his blindfold. Not in waves, but merely once. As in song, he does not move. Asking, didn't dark shatter the glass? Wasn't light ludicrous against his crystal note? This next poem is loosely based on some experiences in New Orleans. It's called Monday Nights at Canal Street Presbyterian. I am sitting, bald-minded, in the third folding chair from the left. It could be worse. To my right, Mary W. has made her point. To my left, Mary G. punches the air. We think she agrees, but no one asks. The room's compromises are bunched in the fluorescent lights overhead, panels that slather them onto the slate gray floor. I slump as if someone has forced me here. Really, though, I just have a better view of the slumbering urn of decaf this way, of the non-dairy creamer waiting for me like a girl at sundown. I wait for Don to gesture to his higher power so that I can take his hand and squeeze, for Mary G. to punch the air, this time just missing Judy. I wait for Judy to explain her horoscope as if she is no longer a Gemini. The turnout today is good. Don offers his hands, and we play the disciple game again. God grant me. Mary W. drops our vice grip a beat too soon, loosing me to cross her own chest. We've all been there, plunging our hands into our necklines to get the most out of the hour, to get out of this room and back into April. We have all tried to hear ourselves in Don's plastic-coated affirmation cards and, with little subtlety, to unsee ourselves in the bodies folded into corrugated metal chairs beside us, each of their privacies drowned. I wrote this next poem after receiving a very official-looking advertisement in the mail one day from Walmart. 
telling me um, what great things I could expect in the way of death benefits after I presume my death benefits from Walmart. I wasn't really sure whether to take this as a good or bad sign, so I just wrote a poem about it instead. Death benefits. They collect in the mailbox like a shy rain. Free Walmart for your loved ones. Free dirt from your loved ones. Free mail for another six months. Some are almost reasonable. Free soup on Tuesdays when you attend Pastor John's with your loved ones. Others remind you that you no longer have anyone to protect you from pyramid schemes, long cons, 18-year-old Mormons. Free confession with donation. Crepe myrtles are identified by their long-lasting, colorful florets, which bloom in the hottest part of the year. You have memorized facts for times such as these. Free fortune from the Wall of China with cookie. You will have happiness when you find luck. A bird drops from the crepe myrtle in the yard and attends its body at the last possible moment in an upward-angled arc. Free frozen desserts for your loved ones on the day of your passing. Cicadas rush one another somewhere out of sight. You guess near a million timbals work to push this human noon in circles around the yard. Another fact swims out of dollar. Cicadas used to be humans who, when the muses were born and song was created, were so overwhelmed with the pleasure of singing that they forgot to eat or drink. They died without even realizing their own bodies. You cannot be sure the postman himself has left these envelopes, but there is no one around to ask if he's been by. And in a departure from New Orleans, this one is called Guide to Riding the New York City Subway. One, resting at the tunnel's mouth. One rat digs for mites in the second rat's ear. The third tosses its scaled tail to the abyss. Two, pushing your nose to the glass. I have fed myself, you might say to the window, and fed myself and fed myself, and I no longer know fear. Your belly might caution against this great awakening. Your belly might portend an opportunistic shift in cosmic pregnancy. Your belly does not yet press its seatmates beside you. Three. In-laws aboard. Shall we all just lie down for a few minutes here and let the rats run across our belly tracks? Four. Looking for a snack. Give up your seat in order to look down a shirt, or maintain your seat in order to look up a skirt, or simply sit on the floor and thank God that you have no beauty to protect. Five. Nodding off before the last stop. Hunch down and hum, you hungry ghost. This next poem is called Sadie. In the bend of the road, Sadie sees an old Labrador. Its hind legs pitch inward and cup a manged tail. The dog's balls hang low, swaying to the left, 
right and left as it lopes away from her. She takes several steps to follow the dog, though the low-hung woods obscure her view as they go. In this way, she and the dog walk the length of several minutes, its pocked tail slipping step by step beyond her into the asphalt's bend. The road straightens after some time, but the dog has gone. She stops, eyeing the invisible, unsure of how long she might wait for its return. And in the worn light of September, Sadie places one hand over each of her breasts and squeezes, thinking how lucky it would be if she had been born a man. And next, I'm going to read a poem in the epistolary mode. It's a series of short, unanswered notes having something to do with love. It's called Yardbird. Yardbird, one. Dear Taylor, I have been thinking birds. I blush. I think someone told me about this time of year. Dear Taylor, I have a bird you should hold. Taylor, yesterday spring caught my skirt, a billow out, whoosh, and today small birds abound. Dear Taylor, have you heard that doves mate for life? I watched today as one walked in a circle behind the house. Have you ever seen just one dove? Taylor. The yard brush is a tangle today. My dove doesn't coo as it was meant to. Yardbird 2. Dear Taylor. Is it that you are tending your own birds? 3. Tay, just today I thought it might not be too late to tell you I still think of you. It's me, and to tell the truth for two months, I have been the dove's other half. I mean, I haven't found the other bird. Taylor, let me try and say this a different way. I never meant for you to see me with another. Yardbird, four. Dear Taylor, the dove has stopped its circling to look at me. These days just looks at me. Dear Taylor, listen, there are three, maybe two more doves, small ones, I swear, out there, though I wonder where they have come from. I am going out to the yard now. I will write soon. Yardbird 5. Dear Taylor, I have retraced the dove circle myself. Surely I can convince you of these things, of the dove I have become. T. Where does spring go? And I'm going to shift gears now into a newer project I've been working on. So I recently had the great pleasure of traveling to Italy for a month. And while I was there, I ate a bunch of pizza. It was incredible. Saw a lot of beautiful things. And I also visited a number of incredible art museums. And I would recommend if you ever find yourself in Naples, definitely to visit the National Archaeological Museum which is just like chock full of mosaics and wall paintings and small objects from antiquity. So the city of Naples has managed to acquire much of this mosaic region intact art from the excavation sites at Pompeii and a few other ancient Roman settlements in southern Italy. And I was particularly arrested by one partially intact 
pretty solitary, small image of this figure wearing a red robe who um, he has the head of a dog. It's kind of like a brown, you know, floppy-eared, long-muzzle dog and the body of a man. You can see his toes peeking out from underneath his long red toga. And so all of these following poems I've written um, kind of explore this strange, lonely dog man character. Um, kind of flesh out his life a bit. He time travels at one point. He, you know, he's kind of existing in ancient Pompeii, and then we do move to modern or contemporary Italy and then America eventually. And you'll see that I also have to kind of um, confess to, in my personal life, having a great love for rats, which does play a part of the Dogman saga. So the players in this somewhat theatrical set of poems or series are DM, who is the man with the dog's head and wears a red robe and leather sandals, and he appears in this one image in a doorway, kind of peering over his shoulder. And the other primary character of the encounter is Ren, who is a man-sized rat and DM's kind of friend and lover. So Act 1 takes part in Italy, and Act 2 will be in the United States. Um, and like I said, there's a moment at which he time travels. Not totally important to note, but here we go with the dog man. Act 1. Pompeii. Dogman stalks the silent house, courts the peristyle, stands neck high in red robe. Diem cants this in his mind, the vestibulum, studies the courtyard, long and silent, with mouth muzzled to the wall. Stories with steps flush to the ground, the house, his red robe, as always, brushing the rushed floor. DM, here is hush on the marble floor, counts with breath the marbles. DM, red robe the color of ash, this is difficult to see, of course, as future ash himself, ash will, he thinks, turns. His muzzle to the door of the peristyle, waits, oblique or shadow, turns, his dog head in relief against the cool marble of home, in the threshed shadow. His man body in early contraposto, they'll say after the fact. Diem's dog face turned south-southwest, his parallel body lean, long, and against the peristyle's Doric-sounding columns. Red robe, a thing of song. Diem. And a red robe stands in a door's way, seeing invisibility. I should mention that um, that poem kind of looks different on the page than most of the other poems in the series, which will be a bit more narrative. Um, and that was really more to kind of flesh out the somewhat fragmented nature of this original image, which obviously is, you know, taken in bits from its um, its resting place and its original home. I will also note that peristyles do come up a lot, um, and the peristyle in the ancient Roman home is kind of this like central, open, roofed courtyard that many of the kind of interior private rooms look onto. This next poem is called Peristyle. Day after day, D 
DM considers entering. He hangs a triangle of glass in the doorway between himself and the peristyle. When certain breezes and light beams bound off one another, the glass projects a vision of space beyond against DM's robe. In these moments, he is not moved to enter, but lets the image lick his belly and tumble against his leather strap of belt. Later, he records the facial expressions of those who round the corner, having just come from the peristyle to unwittingly confront a dogman wearing an imaged sheet and a half-snarl, implacably out of sight. These expressions do not always coincide with the rumors Diem has devised for himself. What, beyond the bend, besides the eccentric ecstasy of his own face? In the old days. They say this, even in the old days, and mean that when you become old, you will merely be a mouthpiece for songs and small stories, for pieces of lives and bits of rough bread dipped in wine. You will open your mouth and out will come a spider you ate in a dream after being told as a child that you would eat ten spiders that night in your sleep. But out comes the dream itself, pockmarked with worry and tiny fingernails curled in on the palm of your hand. This is all to say that when you reach the old days, the elders at the table will look at you as though you have finally been born, but do not have long to live. DM lays out his robe on a straw mat before bed, as he always does, thinking of the stories told to him as a young dogman and how he would escape the night spiders. With his long snout tucked into his armpit, inhaling deeply and snuffing wet, hot air back out across the rim of this pale pit. This way I will not wrestle that old dream again tonight. His shoulders slump and he tucks his head into the familiar pocket of skin, one night closer to the inevitable dry hands and open mouth of old days. Time and space. One night in Pompeii, this is before the eruptive stilling of it all. Diem is pressing his muzzle to the wall as usual, inching his right foot along the crease where two slabs of marble meet, when suddenly, is there ever really a suddenly, a fissure? A plane crashes into the scene, or a truck barrels down the now outside highway, or it is simply a piece of corrugated plastic somersaulting in from stage right. DM sees this puncture in his mosaic place in time and space, and wonders what he will wear in the future. Venice. DM hits another dead end. It's like no one ever wanted to get anywhere when they designed Venice. He thinks, but doesn't sigh. Has never been a demonstrative dog. Instead, turns around, although before he can go, a splash. Not small, neither frantic. A rat the size of a man has jumped into the canal and begun to paddle away from DM. Where a rat of this size comes from in a dead end, no one knows. DM watches it reach the other side, one long paw flopping onto the water after another. Graceless, he thinks, though it's probably just his size. 
And now we have Diem and Ren. A little bit more in the future. Pretty much good friends at this point. This one's called Cucina. Ren is making cereal in his mouth again. A habit Diem deplores. He holds the refrigerator door in one paw and an open carton of milk in the other. Ren adds milk to his mouth, sip by sip, until it saturates the wad of brown, dry crunch already tucked under his tongue and into his cheeks. At this breaking point, as with every other time, Ren's eyes bulge and his whiskers stop moving just for a second. Then it all slides down, his round, brown body heaving into the swallow. Diem knows it is probably just a sugar rush or the near miss with choking, but he likes to think, peering at this ritual from around the corner, some habits die hard, that in that moment Ren is truly, undoubtedly happy. Diem is not sure when he developed this fixation with the swallow, but he is sure that after clutching Ren's torso and sloshing him up and out of the canal that, does he say faded, they, that he will never be as happy as when the rat's padded paw overwhelmed in his own furless grip and spilled down into his gut. We're now taking, kind of jumping into act two a bit. Um, and this next one is just called Noon. So at this point we are in the States. Noon. More than anything these days, Diem is sure that his life will end in increasingly inevitable ticks. Today, for instance, he microwaves a leftover meatball. Ren has been thinking of Umbria again and brings it to the porch, where he eats in his not favorite but basically comfortable rocker as the street winds by. He gives one bite to the small black cat sleeping in the basil, and when he finishes, licks his mouth, and then again and again. Finally, Diem realizes that he and the cat are both still licking the lines of their lips long after all trace of meatball has been erased. The tongue curls out of his mouth as if on a timetable, and against the trickle of traffic, he is undeniably a dog in the mid-moment of an un under-scrutinized life. Two hands lay limp in his lap as he sloshes at his snout, and he wonders why he needs the man parts at all. And I'll finish up here with one last short poem um, deeper into the relationship between Diem and Ren. Breaking up. The first time he and Ren break up, he doesn't eat for a week. This is scientifically possible, he rationalizes, and Ren will have to dither at how gaunt he's become the next time they meet to exchange scripts and wigs and underwear. But he worries that Agnetha and Anifried had it all wrong. Knowing me, knowing you, it's the best I can do. Diem knows, really, that when two animals separate, they lose the other's sense, sounds, ways. They clamber on, claiming the next warm rib cage for as good as the last. All right, and I'll wrap it up there. I want to say thanks to WRBH for hosting me today. This has been Esme Franklin reading poetry on figure of speech. That was Esme Franklin, poet and member of the class, and you've been listening to Figure of Speech, a community poetry and writing program from WRBH. Tune in Saturdays at 1 p.m. and every Monday at 9 p.m. for more great New Orleans writing. Thanks for listening.